Good morning, everybody. My name is Alistair Caithness and welcome to Boom It's on the Blockchain. Today, we're going to be speaking about private equity in oil and gas. We're going to speak about uh, tokenizing energy assets on the blockchain. We're going to speak about carbon emissions on the blockchain and how do we track that. We're live on YouTube. We're live on uh, LinkedIn and we're also live on Facebook. So let me bring in our co-host today. Garrett, how's it going? Hey there, doing good. How are you doing? Yeah, great, Garrett. Great. So good to see you again. Welcome to the show. So good to be here. Good to be here. Perfect. So I think for this week's show, what we're going to do is we're just going to kick straight in in terms of Garrett's going to provide some information on CO2 emissions, carbon emissions, and how we're tracking that on the blockchain. So just give a bit more background about your project, Garrett, and, you know, what it is you're trying to do. Yeah, well, we um, built a uh, carbon and emissions tracking blockchain solution at Energy Ledger, and it is, um, you know, the only EVM compatible solution that does this right now, and it's open source. Anybody can pick it up and go ahead and start using it uh, to track um you know, the oil coming out of the ground and then how um, that produces carbon emissions. So it's it's really helpful for a lot of companies in the fact that it's open source and anybody can take it and kind of build off of it in the way that they, um, you know, think it's going to help them be successful. So um, I guess I will, um, I'll go ahead and do a little bit of a, a demo on that. I'm actually going to, you know, I'm going to show a screen, you know, of the software. I'll do a little bit of a walk through there, but the um, the functionality. I'm going to refer to a video where I have it already done. It's kind of condensed, so it keeps it, you know, to two minutes. Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. So, do you want to just get ready to share your screen just now? Yeah. Yeah, I will. Let's see here. Share uh, screen. And I think what, if, you know, as Gata gets us in place, I think for people to understand that, you know, carbon emissions is something we're all speaking about all the time. CO2 emissions, what the carbon is by country. We spoke about this before. We'll speak about it in upcoming podcasts. But what Gannett's doing, which is sort of unique in terms of tracking things on a, a granular level so it goes right down to the sort of the wells itself so as the oil production gets done Garrett's able to track this co2 emissions now and going forward legislation is going to probably start to force different energy companies and oil companies out there to start to utilize stuff like what Garrett's created you know what's interesting about what Garrett's created and what we're going to help them going forward is if you run an energy company out there you know essentially just from your production data and we get information from the fields we can you know essentially assess what your co2 emissions are and then as he tracks the co2 emissions all the way along the supply chain and then he can work out what the co2 emissions on your energy production is 
and then you're able to offset that uh, through contacts Garrett's got with the Honduras government. Now, this is the same way airlines do it. This is the same way a lot of the blue chip companies do it. It's just what he's applying here into the oil and gas sector. And in going forward, you'll end up having certain states starting to do it. I know the state of Illinois is a lot more regulated now in terms of tracking the CO2 emissions compared to other states in America like Indiana, Kentucky, Texas. But in going forward, what we'll find is we'll probably have all states starting to track this as well. Now, obviously, it's a global problem. And, you know, you've got to look at this as a in global perspective. But ultimately, you know, what Garrett's doing here is ahead of the game in terms of people out there starting to understand what it is the CO2 emissions are created, let alone what the product's for itself. Uh, are you ready just now, Garrett? Yeah, I have to quit and rejoin. So it'll just be like one second. Okay. So as we just like technical issues, we got it there as well. So the other thing you start to look at in terms of carbon emissions is it's like carbon emissions by country. So, you know, as we're trying to cut carbon and CO2 emissions here, there's obviously an increase in, uh, you know, the developing nations in terms of carbon emissions, like the majority of carbon emissions in the world is now coming out of China. India is increasing their carbon emissions, but ultimately they're increasing carbon emissions because they're going through their form of industrial revolution and also they're the world's factory you know i talk about this every week we're placing orders out there they're supplying us with orders we've got massive supply chain problems happening right now because we're so reliant on india and china so to a certain extent we're prepared to give them a bit of a pass in the co2 emissions as long as we get the product in here and then it comes back to like well who's placing the orders well we're placing the orders with the corporations and you're looking at the different apparel companies out there yeah nike adidas you know all these companies in the clothing sector they're one of the biggest polluters out there and they're not prepared to change the way they get these products manufactured, even though we're all sitting at home, we're all concerned about CO2 emissions, but we're still going to go into the store and we're going to buy this product. It's been manufactured in China, been manufactured in India. We don't care about the carbon emissions. We just want the product itself. And then these big companies, they're not telling their customers of the carbon emissions they're creating. So that's part of the whole problem with this. So there's Gannett started this. So let's go back and show them exactly what you do then, Gannett. Yep. So um, this is the dashboard that we built out um, that, uh, you know, assists in the batch tracking of oil from, you know, upstream to midstream. And, uh, you know, just by knowing an accurate number on how much oil is, you know, coming out of the ground, I believe that it is uh, extremely helpful for these companies to then go forth and be able to predict, uh, you know, how much carbon it's producing. Ideally, there's other features that could be built onto this. I mean, it's open source, so your company can take it and build on three more steps, five more steps, whatever it is after the refinery. Um, you know, if you jump in and view, view a batch, um, you know, so, some of this is, you know, it's, uh, hasn't been scaled up to, um, you know, a huge amount of API calls per second, but, um, so that it can be a little bit, I can't hear you. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll go back because you're still trying to, to, to open that page, Garrett. So we'll just before it opens yeah. up in the page here. There it is now. Let me go back in and bring you back in there as well. So let's just um, see. But yeah, what, what we're going to do is we're just going to run through the the video I've got here because this is, you know, a full rundown of the software. Um, you know, you'd add new users and you're doing this by um, – you know, their MetaMask address, so it doesn't even have to be MetaMask. It could be any uh, Web3 blockchain wallet. You can add a, uh, a picture. And then, you know, as you can see here, you're paying a small fee for each transaction. And it's all included on the blockchain. It gets hashed into the blockchain. Um, and then you get these reports, which are extremely helpful for, um, for these companies. And, you know, you could put in all of the address, the people, the employees that are assigned to be working on that batch uh, so they can be held accountable. And at that point right there, it gets hashed into the blockchain. You know, all that data is going in there um, and, you know, you're able to see everything as a uh, employer, as a you know producer. You're able to see everything and, uh, you know, you're able to even add documents, PDF documents, uh, which is huge for a lot of companies um, being able to hash that into the blockchain. It gets put on to IPFS, which is an interplanetary file system. And that's, um, that's big because, you know, for a larger company and for many companies that don't want their data out on a public blockchain, they get, they get the impression that public blockchain means, oh, every, everybody can see it. It's not the case. They can see the transaction. They cannot see the data. The data is within the walled garden of your company's IPFS server, which you can, you know, you can host it on, you could stack servers and host it within, you know, an office or something like that. So it's, um, it's a big deal for a lot of companies to have that kind of security. And, you know, you know, after you go through all of the different, Batches, you know, you're able to, um, you know, you're able to, um, well, this is, uh, this is something else, but you can shut me off now. <laughs> yeah, this is something else, but um, it just auto plays the next video, but, you know, it's a big thing for people. The IPFS thing is what solves all the problems and a lot of companies didn't get that early on with the just blockchain. explain a bit more about IPFS. Yeah, well, it is. it's a, it's called interplanetary file system, which is completely misleading. It's a blockchain file system that allows, you know, people, individuals, companies, whatever. It's how the NFTs are stored. The art is stored, you know, in the cloud and then retrieved, you know, by certain applications like OpenSea. You know, if you've ever bought or sold NFTs, that's where the image is stored. And IPFS is a blockchain, you know, where there's like a little identifier and it weaves into, you know, Ethereum and allows those images to be attached to an ERC-721 contract. And then, um, you know, it's like you bought a you bought a JPEG. Well, that's where the JPEG is stored. It's not on the OpenSea website. It's stored there. And companies a lot of them don't know this yet that they can host a version of that on their computers you know on their servers they can host a um 
a version of IPFS that's completely private, you know, and it weaves in with a public blockchain and, you know, while keeping all of their data safe and it keeps, um, you know, it keeps a level of privacy that they're going to be comfortable with. And, um, but while also using a blockchain and actually, you know, it's the, the cool thing is, is it's an open source software. It's, um, you know, weaves into these public permissionless chains, but it can operate as kind of a hybrid. That's what we built into energy ledger for the PDF system is it's a hybrid that allows for, you know, essentially private permissioned data access on a public permissionless chain. You know, it gives you that hybrid approach and none of these guys knew about it. You know, they tried, they, they went off and they're like, Oh, we can't have that. And they went and spent millions and millions of dollars building, you know, private permission chains that nobody outside of their company, their company alone is going to use, you know, they, it's, um, you know, I remember somebody said this at a conference, you know, standards are like toothbrushes everybody has theirs and nobody wants to use anyone else's and that's all these companies did with blockchain is they created their own little toothbrush for their company and they hold on to it and they try to get other people to use it and it's weird you know because nobody wants to use your toothbrush um but you know what we did is we we created um i guess if we're on the dental analogies we created something like mouthwash <laughs> You know, it's like, um, it's a little bit different, you know, you could spit it out when you're done and it's, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's a little bit different. I don't know the dental analogies are horrible. It just shows you corporate America and the type of stuff people bring to those conferences and the analogies from the boardroom. But, but yeah, you know, what we did is it's quite a bit different and it incorporates state-of-the-art technologies, you know, the stuff that everybody's using for NFTs, the stuff that everybody's using for, um, you know, for blockchain and cryptocurrency. And we reappropriated it to a decentralized application that allows, you know, this tracking to happen and the data to be encrypted, hashed and assigned you know, the responsibility assigned to a specific employee. So it's like, you know, they can't go in and change something later and lie or, you know, you have. I think that's part of the key. The blockchain really yeah. itself, Garrett, is this bit of uh, yep. the information. It, it, you know, you, you can go back and change the information and you can update the information, but the original information is never overwritten. It will always be there. So, yes. so the refutable part of the blockchain is key in going forward. And I think for what Garrett was saying in terms of, you know, when he explained this is essentially how seismic data has been working for years in the oil and gas industry. So seismic data is everyone's got their seismic data. They don't want to share their seismic data with other companies. You know, yeah. we've got our central uh, database. You've got your central database. I'm happy to share uh, seismic data, but you've got to put your seismic data in our central database. What the blockchain is yeah. going to do is because it's a permission blockchain, they're going to have it set up there. Now bigger operators are going to be able to share seismic data together. And then because they share the seismic data together, then ultimately what that will do is it allow them to work together in a way they've never been able to work together before in the past. 
So it's a bit like in the past, you had different two databases and you had APIs speaking to this system. Now it's all essentially, essentially on one database or one central system called the blockchain. And we can share yep. information. And even though it's permissioned and even though it's, it's limited, who can actually access it? Now, that's really what they've started to do. And then people are trying to patent a lot of this technology. People are trying to come on there and just say, we're going to own this part of the blockchain. But really, that's not going to happen. And then what Gannett's doing is what the blockchain should really be used for. It's open source information. It's like, we've developed this code to track CO2 emissions. We are making it available for anyone to use. Now, we can come in and help set it up for you in your own platform if you don't have the technical capabilities. But if you've got the technical capabilities, you can use this open software, open source software to track the CO2 emissions. And it's like, this is what's changing out there. And this is what's basically allowing people to actually start to move forward with this technology. And it's just use cases of the technology. And this carbon part of it is going to be key. And the other thing which is so interesting is that it's going to allow energy companies to go forward and to basically start to show what they're doing across multiple projects and multiple platforms. Yeah, they've got to reduce the carbon emissions and the energy, but we're still needing the energy source. So this is part of the problem that people have to say, well, it's all Shell's fault. It's all BP's fault. It's all X and Mobile's fault. But it's not really because essentially we're using that product for gasoline or we're using that product to refine to make the plastics and we're using that product for this and we're product for this. So we're utilizing all these products, but people need to be able to understand that once you can start to go in this in a granular level, you know, it's not just a case of right now, all we want to do is go after the companies that are creating the energy sources. And we think that's how we're going to fix everything. But it's a case of who, which companies are utilizing that. It's a bit like steel. You know, steel is one of the big, the manufacturing of steel is one of the biggest CO2 emitters in the world. But we still need steel for construction. So without it, we can't do that. And now we're getting steel manufactured in China and shipped back. So essentially, all our steel in America is now manufactured in China. So we've also got to get the A, the CO2 emissions to manufacture steel through coal plants. But then we've got to use all the diesel to put them onto massive uh, container ships and then ship it all back to the U.S. as well. Yeah, that's so an interesting that, you know? observation there because it's, you know, the U.S. mentality on both sides of the aisle, you know, it's, it's not that you can blame just the Republicans or just the Democrats. They both failed to bring manufacturing back to the United States. There's no question there, even in North America, like it's just not happening. You know, the, the manufacturing did not come back to North America. You know, U S Mexico, Canada, it's not happening in any of the three. And um, you know, we've, adopted this out of sight out of mind approach where we just do it somewhere else and you know it's it's kind of uh it's interesting you know that they both arrive at that conclusion that it's better off if china produces it because it's monetarily cheaper but um i think um it's a wild miscalculation of uh you know, how to approach a, a, a climate issue, but B, also a economic 
security of being able to say, hey, all right, well, we produce the we produce the steel, we do it here, we have a steel mill, and we could just do it here if the Chinese decide to uh, stiff us on something, you know. So it's um, it, it's all connected, Garrett, as well, you know. So that's the thing that people need to understand. And then what people really want to understand is it's like, okay, how do I learn more information about it? How does it actually work, you know? And then what Garrett's doing is he's providing this, you know? So it's just like from there, you know? So, no, we've got actually a great comment in here as well from Rebecca Hoffman. Uh, blockchain for Energy is building a seismic entitlement blockchain solution for peer companies. See our website at blockchainenergy.com. So uh, that's good there as well. We've actually got, A, we've got some people watching, but B, we've got like mo probably the most important women in blockchain and energy watching as well. So that's absolutely great, you know? Yeah, so, we appreciate the help. It's, um, yeah, know, yeah. It's, it's awesome to have, so, uh, they do a lot, you know, so, well, they, know, yeah. so for people to understand what blockchain for energy are doing is that was originally a consortium of the major oil and gas companies uh, in America. And now globally, you know, Saudi Aramco is involved in it now as well. Equinor, it's not just uh, ExxonMobil, you've got Chevron, you've got BP, you've got Shell, you've got all these companies coming in, right? And now they're oh, looking yeah. at how to use this technology going forward which is essentially what they're going to be able to use to change the world. Now, we've got to stop. It's like the energy companies are the ones who are going to allow us to transition from essentially fossil fuels to renewable energy. But we still need the energy source. So it's a bit like you can't just keep pointing, that's the bad guy, that's the bad guy, and we're not prepared to even look and understand what these companies are doing, you know? So, you know, that's what's really interesting about what these guys are doing out there as well. We've just received another comment in here as well, which I think is um, going to be of interest. You know, any thoughts on Bitcoin mining strengthening the power grid and speeding up the transition to renewable energy? What's your thoughts on that then, Garrett? You know, this is what I think the real cash cow is for a lot of companies that are just, you know, because it's like I, I played around with the, just purely the software side. You know, obviously we built what we built, but, um, you know, it, you have to factor economic incentive into these things. And uh, I've had some really interesting conversations on how Bitcoin mining could strengthen the power grid and, you know, speed up the transition. And it, it's it's not so much about um, I, I speeding up the transition. I don't think it's so much about that. I think it's more about reducing the existing waste because, you know, these things are going to continue to happen. You know, there's drilling that's going to continue to happen. There's coal mining that is going to continue to happen. And the more that we have, um, you know, if we, if we have Bitcoin mining there to like offload some of the, the waste, you know, the flare gas is probably the biggest one in coal mining as well. You know, there's a uh, methane. Yeah. The big methane. Yep. And, um, using that to power Bitcoin mining machines. Okay. First off, it makes the company money. Second off, you know, the amount of coin that you mine gives you a metric. It gives you aside from the money, it's giving you a metric on, okay, how much were you in dollars outright just losing? 
how much in dollars were you just lighting up on a flare out in West Texas or Illinois Basin, wherever you might be. And for some companies, it could turn out to be billions and billions of dollars that they're just lighting up on the top of a flare. And, you know, worse off, if they don't keep it lit, you know, there's a big issue with that um, if the flare doesn't stay lit because it just methane is so much worse than CO2. Um, it's the silent killer. It's the silent greenhouse gas that we don't hear about because um, everybody's obsessed with CO2, 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 but they don't get that methane is um, it's a lot worse than CO2. You know, there's a lot less of it required to do a lot more damage. If you think in America right now, there's over a million pump jacks. I think 90, over 95% of them are connected to the grid. So if you're taking Bitcoin mining units into America, suddenly you've got, you've essentially you've got a million pump jacks connected to the grid. So they're already connected to the grid. The land right next to them is essentially free. Yeah, you've got the problem that people might try to steal these units, but the way they're building them now, like company like Easy Blockchain, they're in big containers. So it keeps them pretty safe, you know? So essentially they're connecting them to the grid. They're capturing the, uh, the offset gas and then they're feeling it there, you know? So yep. essentially what you're looking to do with that is to capture the excess gas, feed it back into there to reduce your electricity. And then the big advantage as well is, you know, the land right next to these pump jacks is essentially free because they're using it. So you've got free land, you've got grid connectivity, you're capturing uh, excess gas. And then what they're looking to do is terms of renewable energy units is, you know, if we switch away from oil to renewable energy, you might end up having all these uh, pump jacks in 50 years from now converted to essentially some sort of Bitcoin and Ethereum mining units. And, you know, you might have wind turbines or solar farms and that connected to that as well, but it's capturing the electricity and putting it down. Because really what we're wanting to do is to reduce the cost of the mining itself. And that's, you know, it's, it's a growth industry in America. You know, America has gone from, it's doubled the size of their Bitcoin mining in the last three years as less yep. Bitcoin mining gets done in China. And all the Bitcoin mining in China was done by coal. So anything that gets done in Bitcoin and mining in America is reducing the CO2 emissions automatically. Look, here's another message from Rebecca Hoffman now. Let's put it up again. Got it. You must be saying something she likes. Oh, here we go. Mining uses eight more times electricity than to run a household, you know? Yeah, yeah, the um, the the Bitcoin mining process is um very consumptive uh, of electricity. There's a lot of electricity used. Um, no denying that, but I I do think um, you know, I'm not huge one way or the other. I mean, I was approaching things from a little bit of a you know, we I mean, we did our stuff on. You could pick. There are so many EVM compatible chains that many of them don't use proof of uh proof of work anymore like and you know like what i built was evm compatible so you could just put on avalanche or finance or whatever you pick you know solana any of those you just take it to that uh, it's open source so you can go ahead and do that but uh but with the mining <laughs> on ethereum and bitcoin everybody doesn't like that but it's one of those things where um I'll be really interested to see where it goes, you know, where it ends up going in 10 years. 
Yeah, because Cardano or Solano, they're obviously looking at that becoming a key cryptocurrency going forward as well. And one of their big selling points is the amount of electricity they're requiring is less than the likes of Bitcoin and Ethereum itself, isn't it? Yeah, I think unless it unseated Bitcoin from the number one position because of the proof of work, I mean, I don't know, because people will just keep doing it. I mean, people will, if if there's some way to get cheap electricity and the equipment, you know, they, they'll just keep doing it. Yeah, it, it becomes interesting as well. You know, we'll quickly talk about the energy tokens and tokenization in a second as well. But, you know, ultimately, everybody has got roofs up there in their house. So, you know, we've got enough way to generate electricity at home there as well. It's just the case of, in going forward, could you tokenize your roof space? So if you tokenize your roof space and people can invest in your roof space as well that you actually own, because generally people don't go up in their roofs anyway, you could put more solar panels and you could actually have people Bitcoining and doing different types of mining from their homes as well. And this could be an outsourced um, way of actually doing it going forward. You know, Elon Musk speaks a bit about this as well in terms of how we can generate so much electricity from where you actually live and going forward and what we're actually doing now, especially moving to microgrid systems whereby you're essentially storing the electricity rather than feeding the electricity onto the grid itself and then buying it back from, you know, SDG&E. The way they work it is, you you know, what you sell to them is an eighth of the price that they sell to you. It just seems to work that way, you know. It's uh, how it's set up. Uh, we've got Glenn Weissman popped up there as well with like .NET, you know. So, bit of a strange comment, really, itself, then, Garrett. But, you know, ultimately, it's it's where the internet's come from. It's like people talk about this being like Web.20 and Web.30. Explain the difference to people out there from Web.10, Web.20, and Web.30, Garrett, for them to understand. Yeah, it's actually kind of an interesting evolution because everybody thought Web3 was going to be something different. It could be this, that, or the other. But you know, starting with Web 1, that was very simply just having information on a page. It was having information accessible through a domain name that you could enter into a web browser, and then it would retrieve, um, you know, a page of data. Um, web 2.0 was, uh, you know, semantic, uh, semantic data. It was kind of the search engines coming in aggregating all of these different pages, making sense of it, organizing um, people, you know, people, places and things, utilizing, um, you know, these new web technologies, being able to, um, you know, that's where the browser trackers came in. That's where tracking people's behavior on the internet became a thing. And um, then when we finally reached Web 3.0, this is where people kind of expected it. I think there was some um, thinking in myself included 10 years ago, I thought it would be um, something to do with AI, you know, managing um, this data or making it smart, making it uh, producing the data on its own, you know, like a kind of like a GPT two or three It's a little off topic, but that's what I thought it ended up being web three, the bona fide definition that everybody consent consented to agreeing upon was uh money you know it was the the internet of money that was the consensus on 
what Web3 is. And blockchain came along. Um, Bitcoin was the first step. I would still call Bitcoin a little bit Web2. But um, Web3 was Ethereum. That was without a doubt the technology that Ethereum provided was, uh, you know, it was uh, Web3. You know, we got we got Web3 out of that. It was having a browser based extension, a wallet like MetaMask or um, there's a couple others and connecting that to a website and allowing you to, uh, you know, spend you know, money from that wallet to um, make the website function in certain ways or to interact with other users. So it's pretty cool stuff. A lot yeah, of evolution. It, yeah, and evolution in terms of, like, let's do, before I go on and do my energy token spiel that I uh, do every time anyway, got it, you know. But <laughs> if we look at, like, sort of education and cryptocurrency, you know, we've got someone else coming. It's actually from TikTok. We've got TikTok Live there as well just now. Oh, so it's... um. They've come in and they said, how did you learn so much about Bitcoin, Garrett? You know, so if we look at that in terms of where did you learn so much about Bitcoin? Was it not Nick Spanos? Did you not uh, come to him? <laughs> yeah, I, I knew a lot about it, you know, early on, you know, I, I learned a lot about it. I had a, a, a huge uh, opportunity to be early early to Bitcoin and the technology. And then, you know, it was, uh, you know, pretty cool. Cause it was like, you'd see an article about it here or there. And then, uh, you know, that was probably 2012. I had a friend to actually bring it to me. He it was from like a, a Dungeons and Dragons group or something like he, he learned about it and that <laughs> he told me about it, you know, and I, I was like, Dungeons and Dragons, you know. yeah, yeah. So he learned about it. That. He learned about it from a tabletop RPG group, came and told me about it. And I was like, okay, interesting. And then I started seeing some articles about it. And I'm like, that validated me getting involved. I went to Silicon Valley in 2013. I took an internship with a company, a Y Combinator company called Circuit Hub. Um, and I ended up going to a... Uh, the big thing was it wasn't that. I mean, that was completely like unrelated. I went to this Stanford very early on. It was June 2013, this Stanford crypto event. And, you know, Cameron Tyler Winklevoss were there. I met both of them. Um, I told them I was a student at Stanford just to get in. I, I wasn't a student at Stanford. I didn't, I didn't need to go to that shit. Everybody just drops out anyways. <laughs> they go start a company. So it's like... Um, you know, I went there and, uh, I, I, yeah, I, unless you're a lawyer. Yeah. It looks good. If you're a lawyer, <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. But, um, I, I went there and learned more. Um, I already knew a lot though. It was uh, the, the main learning for me happened around the time of Ethereum. Like when that came out, I started playing with the command line interface, like the right when that got released, uh, you know, it was, um, it was interesting, but it was already a, in a sea of just garbage uh, shit coins, as they call them. So it was like, it was hard to tell, like, hey, is this going to really be it? You know, because there was like so many other, you know, coins out there. And, uh, you know, it ended up, I, I saw a lot of potential in it. And, you know, I was very lucky to uh, have been part of that phase of it, you know, that discovery phase. And then, the conferences that came after being able to attend those and, and learn about 
the solidity language because that's just what everybody's using. There's other stuff coming out like uh, like Internet Computer. They've got like Motoko, you know, but all these things take years to really flesh it out. And it's super hard without um, without getting the backing of the Web3 community and the kind of money that's out there for blockchain startups. And it's, it's weird that it's like an establishment now, but without getting in there, it, it never gets adopted. You know, it's uh, unless, unless. Uh, Perseverance, I think is what's needed. To yeah. Get it, you the, know, the, the timing. Exactly. It's, and it's timing. also people, yeah, it's also people to understand that, you know, it's, it's just use cases of the technology, you know, it's just like, yeah. it's like the internet came along. You talk at web 1.0, it just came along with email. And now there's a million use cases of the internet and coming back to the common and .NET. And then now suddenly the blockchains come along from Bitcoin was the first thing and then Ethereum. And now what's happening is, you know, we had um, blockchain for energy, you know, you should check out their website. They'll go through all the yeah, projects definitely. they're working on. You'll be looking at other people. Stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're leading the field in terms of the energy sector. And again, it's still going to be adoption because it's a big long runway for the big energy companies to move into this technology. But now they're starting to invest a lot of money in this technology and they're wanting to adopt it and they see it's the technology of the future. And now they're starting to apply it to different parts, especially in supply chain and smart contracts, stuff like that, which will become the norm in the next few years. So let me run down this part of the, the presentation as well. Let's go see. So let me go through our energy tokens platform. Let's have a look just to get this set up. So this is what we're running. This is what Garrett's helping us with now, putting in part of the carbon emission for the token trackers. So, so let, let's look what we're trying to do with energy tokens and the technology. You know, we're looking to to transform the mechanism by which assets are acquired, held, and transferred. So, you know, as we go through this, let's see. So what's the problem? So, that, you know, if we start looking at the problem of the industry and what we are trying to solve is, it's just the way energy assets have been acquired, held, and transferred has not changed over 100 years. So ultimately, you know, if you think about it, if you have to buy interest, so our company's IN now, I've been doing this company for six years now, uh, we've acquired interest in the, as a, probably about 90 wells we own interest in now as well, in Texas and in Indiana. And that's the two places we offer assets. So when we went to acquire interest, part of our Zion tokenized fund, and we've gone through the process. So, you know, we're set up as an operator in the state of Indiana. Uh, we had to go through the process to see all the pain points, understand how to tokenize the first wells. We tokenize them in the blockchain. So we've done the process through, and it's a sort of proof of concept. So I see my company more as a, a software information blockchain crypto company than actually an oil operator. I just had to go through the process of setting up to be an oil operator. And it was with a partner, Shane Fraser, who was high up in Shell that helped me go through the whole process in Indiana. And we've been out there multiple times to go and do this. But ultimately, when you buy interest into oil wells, the last ones we bought this year was back in March. It took about six weeks from when we paid the money until the interests were transferred into our name. So when you buy interest into an oil well, for people to understand is, it's actually the time that takes for this to get transferred is all sort of antiquated through courthouses. So it's a long process for that. So we're talking about this technology and blockchain 
But we're, when it comes to actually the way the interests into these oil wells are held, it's still the same way they did it when we first started drilling for oil back over 100 years ago. So what have we done with Energy Tokens platform? So it's really been de developed to address the problems facing the energy industry in this specific aspect of it. So we're not talking about the other projects other people are working on because there's multiple projects. We're looking to basically change capital structures through tokenization and digitization to solve this problem itself. So what is the one there? So it's actually difficult to sell and buy fractional interest. The logo's covering the top um, corner of the, the presentation. So, so direct investments are made through private negotiated transactions. So right now, th this is the way it's working. It's a bit of a closed shop because ultimately the next point is non-industry investors. So you're sitting at home Unless you're, a, unless you're an accredited investor, a high net worth investor, there's no way and involved in the oil industry is like, how do you buy interest into oil producing assets in Texas? It's basically nearly impossible. So there's no way for you to buy an asset that gives you distributions under an energy format right now. And this goes into renewable energy, coal, everything. It's very much a very closed shop. And now here's the other problem, and this is what we start to look at. So a lot of people know me from Zinecoin. We developed Zinecoin, and we're looking to develop this concept where we will create an underlying coin or token for the oil and gas industry, and people would use this. So right now, there's $200 billion lost a year in the oil industry, basically on transactional fees and banking fees and international fees as well when it goes from bank to bank to bank, and every bank takes its cut of this. So back in 2017 18 19 the concept was to actually create coins or tokens to replace this and save these costs the problem was you can see there's a problem to solve we've created this coin to do this but unless you got adoption from the super majors essentially you're creating something that no one's going to use because unless the super majors use this coin and they all agree to use it and then it's not going to work. So then we had to sort of pivot the model. We knew the technology was good. We just didn't understand where our place that it would come in in order to get market adoption. So then you have to pivot the model. And the pivot of the model was, well, let's look at it from a non-op interest point of view. So people are investing into these oil assets. And, you know, traditionally in these small independent assets in America, the production is anywhere between 15 to 25 years. So say 20 years on average. So for 20 years, you've bought this asset that's giving you distributions in the decline curve. You know, you're producing the top most and then it starts going down and down and down and down and down all the way along. So the problem is that you've got an asset that gives distributions, but it's very difficult for you to sell this asset because you've got a non-op interest holder. So the operator owns the most, the landowner, quite often the farmer will own, say, 125 to 20%. You'll have different funds, pension funds, these guys coming in, private equity groups, uh, and energy banks helping fund the project. And then it'll be out to a small investment pool of high net worth investors who are investing in the project themselves. But the problem is these funds or these high net worth investors, they've got the money locked into the life cycle of the project. Now, it's obviously profitable and that's why they do it but really it's very difficult to sell these interests so whereby if we flip this into a token it sort of can solve these problems 
So if you look at our solution and what we're trying to do and what we're creating is, so we're looking to set this up on sort of permission blockchain, data analysis using artificial intelligence. Now, these tokens that we're creating, they're not NFTs. So an NFT is a non-fungible token. This is different. This is a non-fungible security token. Now, without, you know, I'll show the financial model in the next slide. And without getting into too much detail for this, if you think about an NFT backed against a piece of digital art, an NFST, a non-fungible security token, or an energy NF NFST, we're trying to do the same model but we're essentially doing this as a security token against the physical assets of oil and gas production. So within this token, that's what we put in. So to go through the slide and how it actually works, and this is the financial model. So ultimately what you're looking at is, you know, the energy asset itself. So this information's analyzed. So we analyze the information the same way it's analyzed now. And this is what it's getting analyzed. It'll have the future production. It'll have the assets required. It'll have a valuation on the token and essentially a top level valuation on the energy production itself, if it was an individual project. And people can get distributions of that. So these types of NFSTs, they're not going to be similar to cryptocurrencies because they're different because a cryptocurrency doesn't really give any type of distributions. So a cryptocurrency set up and you're investing in something that goes up and down in value. The difference is you're investing in this NFST and as it produces energy, you get the distributions itself. So as we run through the model, you know, we've got the energy asset, the information's analyzed, this information's recorded on the blockchain. This piece of it is where we're going to bring Garrett as well, whereby we're going to build into the smart contract of the energy token, where we're going to track the CO2 emissions of that energy asset as well. So we want to build it in. And yeah, I know people are saying, well, I've got a patent for this. I've got this. Garrett's made this uh, information open source. So I understand there's other people creating this type of technology out there and blockchain of energy are also doing this as well. But what we're wanting to do is we're wanting this piece of it to be set up whereby any token that we create, we want to crack, uh, track the CO2 emissions of the token on the blockchain concurrently as we're running through this. And this is part of the model that we're developing. And all of this will be recorded on the blockchain. Now, the next bit is sort of key in terms of the NFST and how it's set up. See, it's not oil that gets tokenized. It's the it's the equity ownership of this gets tokenized. So suddenly, if you think of the oil project, it's all broken down in percentages. The operator's got 40%, management team's got 5%, the farmer's got 15%, and 35% is non-op interest investors. Suddenly, this could be all split into like a million tokens, oil token one, energy token one. The difference is now is we're not changing how anything else works in terms of the production of the energy source. All we're looking to do is track the CO2 emissions as it goes through this process. And it means rather than you owning 1% of the oil project to get distributions, now you own a thousand oil token one, thousand energy token one. And then what it'll do is you'll want to hold on to the token. And the transfer agent is going to be tracking this information all the time. So the transfer agent will be tracking who's got the tokens at any one time. People will have to come in. They'll have to go through a KYC. And the same way you have to do an account with Fidelity or Robin Hood apps or all things like that as well. So it's the same KYCs coming in. So all that part of the process is the same. 
you've really what you've got is the transfer agents tracking that and now they'll know who's got the tokens so when it comes to do the distributions of the token what actually happens at that specific moment in time is if you've held onto the token this amount of period, you will get distributions. Now, the distributions you will get currently in the oil industry, it's going to be US dollars. We're setting up that you'll be able to do the distributions in US dollars or euros, which can obviously convert to any other currency. But we'll also want to do the distributions in Bitcoin, Ethereum. So you'll be able to actually get distributions in Bitcoin itself. So you'll actually be able to take Bitcoin and invest into these NFSTs. And then as it produces energy, you'll be able to get distributions in Bitcoin. And if you ever want to sell this asset, you'll be able to sell it through an SEC regulated ATS. Now, people are saying, well, why have you been doing this for so long? And why is it only becoming to market now? Really, it was only the end of last year, the beginning of this year, that these ATSs have come online. So, you know, the leading players in America right now are the likes of Securitize, T0 and North Capital providing these services. But there's more and more companies coming in. And if you go and research those three companies themselves, you will see these guys have got, you know, they've got broker dealers, they've got transfer agents that trading system to be able to trade these tokens and the way it'll work is you'll be able to trade these tokens through a metamask wallet or a coinbase wallet itself so where's the market opportunity well you know before we just go into that as well in terms of the model and then we'll get it finished with the presentation is you know the way you're thinking about it is renewable energy, because that's what we're talking about, this transition in energy. We speak about this all the time, the transition in energy, blockchain and energy. That's what these guys are looking at. You know, they're looking at how they can become net zero in terms of oil and gas production, where they can hit this all the way through the supply chain, how they can basically cut the cost of oil production to keep supply chain costs down. But how can we transition for these massive energy operators who will be the companies that take us into renewable energy? Yes, there's going to be other companies out there, but these guys will lead the way. But if you think about renewable energy right now, I'm saying it's a closed shop to invest in oil and gas projects and the difficulty our companies found this as a startup in the oil and gas sector to even own these nine interests in 90 wells. You try and invest into a wind farm and a solar farm right now. It's actually basically impossible. You know, how do you own part of a solar farm? For retail investment, it's impossible. And I think... This type of tokenization for oil and gas companies and energy companies is going to be key going forward because these energy companies, you know, I was at Shell's website. I go to their website sporadically looking what they're up to. If you start looking at the renewable energy project Shell's invest, involved in now, it's amazing. You know, these guys are on the cusp of all the technology change. Now, if Shell decided to tokenize part of a wind farm and part of a solar farm and make, say, 5% open for retail investment, Shell Renewable Energy Token 1, A, Shell would own the token. So, you know, well, wait a minute. It's the Shell token, not Zioncoin. I like this idea better than I like that anyway. Mm -hmm. Secondly, it would allow mass adoption and a mass interest in what Shell are doing. Because right now, if you think of what's happening out there, people just think Shell's a bad guy, ExxonMobil's a bad guy, BP's a bad guy, you know, Equinor used to be Statoil, you know, involved in a lot of renewable energy, Norwegian company, bad guy, because they're oil companies. But they're involved in massive renewable energy projects. But people aren't aware of this information because they don't go to the website to see. 
whereby if they open up retail investment, so you sitting at home can own part of a shell wind farm and every quarter as they're selling electricity, you get some distributions from your shell token. You'll be telling everyone, yeah, I've just bought into the Shell Wind Farm. Absolutely brilliant. It's a great way to put my money in right now. Inflation's going up at eight and a half, nine percent it's on the UK today. Where I'm wanting to put my money, I could put my money into this Shell Wind Farm that's going to be producing electricity for the next 20 years. And every quarter, if I hold on to the Shell Wind Farm token, I can get distributions from it. And that change it changes the narrative for that and it changes the thought process and what people are able to see with this. But if you think back to oil and gas as well, because it's like, to me, this is like our business model and the key opportunity with what energy tokens and what we're looking to do with our platform right now. Because no matter what we say, and no matter we want to move to green energy, the price of oil at $114 a barrel because of the war in Ukraine right now with Russia and Ukraine and all the supply chain uh, problems this is creating, it's essentially putting the world into a global recession. We're, we can't stop this right now. Oil price is so high because of this, because you know Russia produces so much gas to the market space as well. We're still using this product. We all drive around cars. You know, there's not that many Teslas. And if Teslas are coming out more and more expensive, how can people just all switch to this? So we're all going to need this product. We need gas to be lower, not higher, because it makes the cost of everything going up. But what you found in terms of the private equity in oil and gas in America, see, America's never going to run out of oil. That's the first thing we've got to understand. We're never going to run out of oil here. But because of legislation, it's been more and more difficult to get funding from the energy banks and private equity firms to invest in US oil and gas upstream projects. So even though the price of oil is $114 a barrel, because of legislation coming in, it's very difficult for them to start projects. And because of that, because we're wanting to like look good from a political standpoint, whereby we should be increasing our production here right now to deal with the demand, to force energy prices down, to get control of it, you know, why do we want to import more and more oil from Saudi Arabia so they have a bigger control in the market space and keep going cap in hand to these guys? So if you look at the, just what's happened recently in the, the investments in independent energy projects in America, right now, 200, over $200 billion in 2018 came from private equity and energy banks. Last year, this dropped to less than $20 billion. So this is where I see the market opportunity for what we're doing with energy tokens and our journey that's taken to this point. Because you sitting at home might think, well, you know, I want to go green. I want to do this. I want to do that as well. But we're still needing this investment money going forward. So there's a $180 billion hole in the marketplace in terms of gap to invest in new oil projects on the, uh, the, uh, the market space in the U.S., you know, so if we start to tokenize these projects, now, if you're running a small operator and you're making a lot of money, yeah, you've got me there, but even these guys are making money. They're still finding it difficult to raise capital to do the next energy project. And not everyone's making enough money without going out to the market space to borrow to make the money. That's how it works, people. But if you create an energy token whereby suddenly you can go to the crypto community 
and you can say to them, listen, I've got this project. We're going to tokenize it. This project is we're going to track the carbon emissions on it as well. And we'll show you the carbon emissions compared to this project compared to, and we'll even offset this by buying carbon credits with the Honduras government. So we'll be able to do all this anyway to essentially make our project net zero. You know, what our model is within in energy tokens is we want to set this up. Now, obviously, if Shell's looking at that going, I'm not giving this guy 1% of my energy project. Obviously, if we made an energy token from Shell, it'll be 0.0001 of your project, you know, as a transactional fee of what actually happens. The other people using as capital raising mechanisms, we're looking to help them do this. And then people from the crypto community, you're sitting at home thinking, well, wait a minute, I want to own an energy project. And if you're looking to develop a wind farm and a solar farm, and you're looking to raise capital for this as well, it's like suddenly an energy token going out to this community out there. And then people sitting at home might be thinking, well, I've not really gotten to crypto. I've not really got into this, but I understand this technology is coming in. These NFSTs, non-fungible security tokens, you know, drop us a message, come in and ask us what you're looking for for this. And then ultimately, it's basically what you're looking at in terms of buying into an energy project that you've never been able to do before in the past. And this is what this technology is allowing us to do. So that's me run over our project. And this is the opportunity and the market opportunity, what tokenization is going to do. And it's just right at the very beginning then, Garrett, you know? Yep. Let me see. Look, someone else has just come in with a big comment right now. So this is Daniel Addison. So I agree, Rebecca, and this is going back to uh, Rebecca Hoffman's comments. I agree, Rebecca, with your comment. In addition, having a secure middleware like Oracles will allow blockchain and smart contract applications that run on them to interact with real-world data streams and traditional back-end systems. Visit Chainlink Oracle. Uh, I've never been to this guy's website. I'm going to check it out straight after as well. Give us a bit of feedback on what he's saying right now for people to understand it, Garrett. Um, yeah, this is interesting. You know, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the Oracle problem, you know, has been pretty much solved. I mean, there's a lot of great options like Chainlink. I mean, Chainlink was, you know, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, you know, and, uh, these smart contract op, you know, the way they operate, you know, it, it, having the real world data was always a difficulty. Then Chainlink came along and, um, you know, allowed you to, you know, pull something in, like say like WTI oil price or, you know, the price per kilowatt hour in, you know, a, a certain county or, you know, something like that. Um, but, you know, having it be secure is very important. You know, that's a big of, of, great importance here so um you know it's good that he mentioned this you know because it's um this is another one of those things where it's kind of it's, it's open it's out there for everyone to use and it highly i don't i don't know what b s c c a link is i've never heard of it but 
We'll, um, we'll put it in the show. Anyone leaves their website information there as well, whatever it is, we'll include it obviously in our show notes and when we send out to people there as well. Any of the comments that come in, anyone wants to do that, we'll create the links and stuff like that. So people will be able to go back in and start accessing the links as well. The thing is about it, Garrett, it's it's basically like there's so much out there. You know, that's what's amazing. It's just as you start to go into this technology and start going into it, it's like a deep dive. It's just like the minute you start going into it, there's more and more ideas coming there. And the thing is, people at home don't realize this yet because the percentage of people using Bitcoin and using any cryptocurrency and starting to even understand what the blockchain is, it's less than 1% of the world's population. That's how little the yeah. people are using it right now. So the adoption is going to happen between now and 2050. In 2050, we'll all be using this technology in the same way we use the internet. It's just not like, oh, we've missed the boat. The boat's, the boat's just, the, we're, we're, the boat's still in the docking here. We're just starting to move. And then these people are getting in there as well. And it's just more and more people coming in. And it's just so interesting what people are doing with this technology. And, you know, I'm focused in tokenization. That's what I've been working on for, you know, basically three years. And we've been looking at small oil and gas operations that we've been doing and then trying to find this solution and problems we're trying to solve. And then, you know, get introduced people like Garrett and start understanding what he's doing and then seeing how we can work together for this oh wait a minute here we go let's just get this up just now because daniel's coming in appreciate this daniel it's a blockchain security analytics company it's a secure link chain link node operator so just explain a little bit more about that for the people to understand what a secure chain link node operator is got it um you know basically they operate a chain link node it's like, you know, there's all of these, um, you know, I'm not super familiar, but I do know that many of these networks that don't rely on proof of work, you know, they have validator nodes and, you know, different people can come in and run them. You know, either the, the deal is they have to have a, a certain amount of tokens or meet some other criteria of governance, and then they could run this, this validator node. And that's how I've seen uh, most things that don't require mining. That's how they do it. They do it through the, the, validator nodes and uh this seems to be a organization that is um you know operating one of those nodes so it's uh very very cool stuff and uh you know i and then we'll definitely put all we'll definitely put all this links and everything daniel sent in in the the notes as well so people will be able to go to his website and check this out and learn more information on there as well and also if the people out there you know maybe we can get these people to come on the show so they can go into more detail on what they're looking to do we've got guests lined up in the upcoming podcast as well which is uh good as well so let's just like switch a little bit off topic to where we were before then so la yeah last week let me bring this in i started to speak about homelessness with veterans you know so and had someone else started to ask me and i got a couple of quotes and uh, you know information that's let's see if i can bring this picture in there as well homeless veterans support your troops so you know you think you think about what's happening out there in the market space in terms of homelessness, you know? What we're finding is that in America right now, there's over half a million people who are homeless. I think it, I've looked at the numbers right now, it's 552,000 people are homeless right now in America. And of that, approximately 50,000 are veterans. So, 
you're looking at, it's actually, I think it's an eighth. I think it's a, between 11 to 12%. So if you, you go down there, most people, when they see somebody's homeless, they, they say things like, oh, he's a vagrant. It's a problem with drugs. It's a problem with alcohol. One in eighth of, um, is an eighth of them. So that's basically for every eight homeless people you see, that person is a veteran, which is an unbelievable statistic. You know, and, and America is one of these places, you know, we want to support our veterans, you know, thank you for your service and all that. But what's happened is we've created a system whereby the cracks in society have created where these people are ending up in the streets. Now, why are they ending up in the streets? Because a lot of them get uh, PTSD. A lot of them, they, they can't get a job. They can't fit back into what's actually happening in there there's a shortage of, you know, affordable housing out there as well. So what happens is, and then a lot of it because of the healthcare system that's here as well, that a lot of veterans have to fill in a lot of information in order to be able to go on to these, uh, to access uh, services as well. So what happens is there's, there's just nowhere for them to go and they just end up on the streets. And so, so then we're looking at these types of problems. So, you know, if you think 12.5%, that's like a crazy statistic. Now, people say, well, that person's still drinking alcohol. Well, you try sleeping on the streets at night when it goes down to minus whatever and you're absolutely freezing. You know what I mean? Maybe just getting enough money to get yourself a bottle of cheap whiskey to actually survive the night is your only hope. It's like pure and utter survival. You know, when these people in California, they're eating out of trash cans and they eat out of a trash can. This guy back in the 90s or early 2000s at the two different Iraq wars, you know, ultimately they are now having to eat out of a trash can and they're homeless with it. But when you start to go into this, now my oldest son, Malachi, he's an autism spectrum. So obviously I've got an interest in mental health and what actually happens there as well. But, you know, ultimately they say like 60% of people who are homeless have experienced mental health problems and 30% of them of, of are chronically, um, what did they say? Chronically homeless mental health conditions. I think that's what it is I wrote down what, and that's how they actually put it down in their statistics. But if you think of that, it's like absolutely and utterly crazy because it's like, how can that be the case, you know? So it's just like, wait a minute, we've got a system whereby 552,000 people are homeless, right? Of that, essentially an eighth of them, 12.5% of them are veterans. And we've got a system that's created this. And then you start to look at, oh, well, gentrification. This is when we go into areas, which are low class areas, and we suddenly knock it all down, put in new apartments. That was actually low cost housing that people stayed for in the past. And then what happens is, is like, some of these people just cannot get another property. And then they lead to this, you know, some of the statistics become even worse when you're going into it. So 51% are single males. And that's where most of these veterans are included in there. 24% are single females. But the fastest growing sector for homeless people are families with children. So wait, wait a minute, whole families are now going homeless because of what it is. Now, with inflation going up the way it's going right now, it's going to get worse and worse. 23% of homeless people now are families. And then it starts to come into like really sort of, you know, scary numbers. It's like 30% of them are under the age of 18. And then, but they're mostly with their families. But 5% of all homeless people out there 
are kids under the age of 16 who don't have their mother or don't have their father on the streets with them as well. You know, that's, so that's a crazy, that's like 30,000 kids, 16 and under, are alone right now, homeless on the streets of America. So, you know, and you start looking into this thing as well. It's like, how do they actually fix it going forward? And we can't just keep saying, well, it's drugs. You know, it's alcohol. That's it. You know, yeah. bad, poor decisions. It's like there's multiple things. You, you know, your 60% are mental health problems. They're looking to do this as well. You know, they're closing down all the public libraries. So for homeless people, public libraries used to be the only way they can access the Internet. You know, think about like that. Oh, they closed the public library. That's how homeless people access the Internet. Or we need to put in a job application. There's a job wanted there. You need to put in an electronic application. How can they even get the Internet to put in the application? It's like it's it's an unbelievable, horrible thing that's going round and round and round. And then they start to, to do the statistics whereby, well, if this person needs to be sleeping on the streets so many days of the year to be included to be homeless. So if they're sheltered for a lot and they manage to go into some sort of affordable housing, but end up back in the streets, oh, we, go, we don't count that statistic this year because it doesn't work like that, you know? And it's yep. like the more I dig into this thing here as well, and it's like I, I walk down to Balboa Park when I'm down there. It's like I see these people. So many of them are autistic. So many of them are, are stimming, you know? It's like they are stimming. They are autistic, you know? It's like, and then the percentage gets so much worse when you start going into different areas in terms of, you know, people from being, you know, African-Americans. They are four times more likely to be homeless than somebody who's white. You know, that's like a crazy statistic there as well. African So in amongst it all, so if you're African-American and you've got mental health problems and you're autistic, you know, you're, the chances are you're going to be on the streets and then society is not going to give you a chance to get back. There is no way back for you right now. And then you're just living through this life of just being disregarded by society and yet there's no way back. And then what are the what are the politicians looking to do? Well, we just blame the other guy. Well, it's all California's fault. What do they? Well, they all come to California because it's sunny, you know. It's like it's it's like it's a it's a crazy thing that's happening more and more. So every week I'm going to focus on different things to speak about mental health, different things to speak about homeless veterans, and different solutions that we can look to speak about, and why we have to do something more than what we're doing right now, you know. Why can't yeah. we do more than what we're doing right now? We're happy to send $46 billion worth to Ukraine. You know, majority of that is in weapons as part of our aid package, you know, and we're able to do an executive order. And I get it, you know, I, I feel so bad for people in Ukraine, all the problems there as well. I'm not discounting what's happening with that. All I'm saying to people right now is they can write an executive order for $46 billion just like that. To, for us to put all our weapons out there there as well. Why can't we do another executive order for $46 billion to try to fault solve these solutions and especially coming back to homeless veterans? There, there shouldn't even be and then it comes back to what I spoke about last week is the paperwork these people have to fill in, right? To be able to access services is unbelievable. So you're on the street, you're a veteran, you've gone to maybe two tours in Iraq, a bit of shrapnel's gone into your brain, bomb's gone off. You come back, you can't get a job, you can't fit in society, your family's left you, you've got PTSD, you've got mental health problems now, you've got all these problems, you're out sleeping on the street. But don't worry, you're a veteran, so you can access our services 
all you've got to do is fill in the forms. And the forms are like a telephone book. I don't know if people remember, but old people, the old yellow pages, it's like that much. It's like, how can that person fill that in? It's absolutely impossible. They shouldn't be forced to do that. You know what I mean? If you're a veteran and you've gone out to defend this country, why are you, why an eighth of them are ending up in the streets? You know? And it's, it happens everywhere. It's like an unbelievable system. You know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. and, it's, and, and we're prepared just to walk past them. And we're prepared to do that. And the thing is, you know, what can you do? Maybe buy them something to eat. Maybe drop them a little bit of money. But now we're going to a cashless society. It's like, so who's carrying cash anymore? They, they can't, they don't have an ATM machine to say, oh, well, I'll just give you $20. And I'll just Venmo you 20. You know, how are you going to Venmo 20 to them? You've got no cash. So it's even getting more and more difficult for them. The pandemic was horrible for homeless people, you know, and it, it, and it just it created more homeless people. And now we're going into this horrible recession. You know, we're in a recession now anyway, people. It's like we need two quarters of negative growth. Well, I'm telling you what, this quarter, this, <laughs> after what's happened in the last few days in the markets and that, and then last month being the worst month in like what, three years or four years, it's like we're in a recession right now anyway, you know. So how is it going to, and so the recession doesn't suddenly bounce back, you know. And we will come back as a cycle. I get that there as well. But how are we going to help these people during this time? And that, that and that's something that just irks me a lot from that, you know. So it's, uh, but what can we do then to, to, to help this then, uh, Garrett, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, th there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of it comes with, um, you know, notifying people kind of, you know, sometimes the benefits from the VA that they don't know are there, like with um, a lot of veterans that were exposed to burn pits. That's a very big one. Um, and I've helped um, I've helped a couple friends of mine, you know, you get in that registry and get registered for when there is compensation, because it's been promised now at this point. And there, you know, there, there are so many veterans that were impacted by the, the burn pits. You know, PTSD is another huge one. You know, mental health is the biggest one that ends up putting people on the streets. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's really about those first couple months when somebody gets out of the military and they're in the process of, you know, piecing together what their career is going to be um you know following following the time in the military and it's it's you know up to us it's good friends and you know family and uh you know people that are able to kind of help you know give give them options and ideas and you know stand with them you know when they've come back from you know a tough situation and um you know especially in the case of mental health it's uh it's difficult and it's not always something that people want to accept help for and uh but you know just you know standing with them and kind of like you know being uh being a friend is a huge huge step that, there's, uh, no, helps. there's no support network for them you know and what yeah. we'll do is we'll we'll get adam kokesh on the show at one point and then talk about this americoin concept we've been working on in terms of tokenizing the federal assets but we'll leave that for another show and then everyone will get distributed these tokens you know is a potential way coming out of that and maybe we should talk about that next week but it's good to keep talking about this for people and if you go to these shows so you go to the oil shows i go to oil shows there's oil shows there's always a stand right 
there at all these yep. shows, energy shows. There's always a stand from veterans out there or people looking to help homeless veterans. And all you need to do is just go start speaking to them, you know? And they'll start to enlighten you what they're trying to do, what they're trying to do in terms of raise money and where the shortage in terms of the financial aid for these people to actually provide these services because suddenly it's just like walking off a plank where are they going to go you know it's just like it's unbelievable so as we're as supposed to be an hour show again this is going to like ruin it for me with youtube because once you go over an hour it's just like it becomes difficult to basically edit stuff never mind here we go so we'll get into the final topic of the day which is my favorite chewing the cud so chewing the cud today then gannett we'll start off with you what we're going to speak about is Biden and Elon Musk. Here we go. Did we see him there? Let me see. I've got a better image, actually. Here we go. Oh, there we go. There we go. Look at this one right now. I think they're, they're, all their Twitter accounts have been hacked since uh, Elon Musk's taken over. <laughs> so, wow. uh, so basically, um, and then they're trying to actually sell Bitcoin through them, you know? This is like what's happened in the past. Oh, yeah, the classic, the classic, <laughs> you know, and they take yeah. over a Twitter account and try to try to sell Bitcoin. Sell Bitcoin. But you, you just give your insight right now, uh, Garrett, in terms of uh, tuning the card. What was Elon Musk saying about uh, Biden this week? Oh, I don't know. This week I'd have to actually look that up. Um you know, it I, was. I'll, I'll just remind you anyway. So it's like, so it's not a case of it's who's running the country. It's not Biden, but the person who is in charge of the teleprompter. So that was his <laughs> yeah. comment. That was his comment there when he came out in this week for that. So you know who is in charge well, of the teleprompter. A, I mean, that's a there's a lot of truth to that because um, you know it's. It's just one of those things where, I mean, he's a very elderly man and um, he's, uh, you know, in a position where he's, sometimes he stumbles over his words and, uh, you know, it's probably not a good job for him to be the president. I mean, and he just, you know, when, on a good day, he's able to read things off the teleprompter and do his job. On a bad day, he kind of stumbles a little bit. So it's... Um, it's uh scary. Yeah, yeah. Plus, plus, I was the reason I picked this picture in particular was I was thinking that the person in charge of teleprompters, the gentleman to the right, <laughs> yeah. Mr. Gates himself. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, um, yeah. you know, is he in charge of the teleprompters? It's a bit like the Wizard of Oz. You know, when they bring back the the <clears throat> the curtain and who's behind the curtain? Is it actually Bill Gates? You know what I mean? So it's uh, you never know with that as well. But, you know, ultimately, it's not a good position for the country right now. Inflation's going higher and higher. The war in Ukraine, you can't really blame him for the war in Ukraine. That's not his fault. So it's like, but what's that doing is it's creating supply chain shortages. So, you know, it's not only was originally it was the oil price going up, but now what's happened over the last few months, everyone's realizing, wait a minute, all this grains we've created from Ukraine, uh, fertilizer comes out of Russia and Ukraine, all these sanctions against Russia stopping fertilizer getting in the marketplace. Suddenly there's a shortage of grain, forcing the price of everything up. Not only energy prices go up, but then the price of all your product go up, inflation goes up. And then suddenly there's potentially going to be a global food shortage 
uh, in going forward in everything that's happening right now. And as president of the country, he's sort of in charge of trying to keep things on an even keel and how things actually work from there. And that in itself is not that easy to do, you know. So, you know, it, it's, it's one of these things. And then obviously um, what's happening with Twitter right now as well is obviously not good for them. That Musk is now saying that, well, he might not buy it because there's so many fake accounts in there, you know, so it's um, Kardashians will be panicking because like 93% of their accounts are fake, you know what I mean? So suddenly how many fake accounts are actually out there? It's the same with Facebook as well. It was like yeah. Zuckerberg's <laughs> claiming like, you know, there's 2 billion people on Facebook today. Well, wait a minute, there's, only, there's not even 8 billion people in the world. So you're telling me that all these other countries that don't have Facebook and using <laughs> Facebook, everyone's on it today using that type thing. You know, I, I gave yeah. up Facebook marketing because it was like, you know, our energy tokens platform, we were, buying, we were doing Facebook marketing a lot, you know, a few years ago where we were getting lots and lots of followers. And then I started looking into who all these followers were. And they were basically the same type people. They were just like, they had a name, they had two pictures, profile pictures, and they had six pictures and they would comment in nothing else. And then they would just like stuff, you know? So, and if you look yeah. at some of these clickbait farms, I remember this documentary of it out in, I don't know where the, where they were. I think maybe in Indonesia or someplace in India, but basically it was a factory, just all of cell phones set up. And there was just like, oh, millions of cell, yeah, millions of cell phones set up there as well. It was like a farmer that, and it was Coca-Cola were paying these massive contracts to like their thing. And then Coke and Pepsi were essentially paying these big clickbait farms to be getting more and more followers for the products, things like that as well. So it's good to see that he's now sort of pulling them up in terms of fake accounts. I don't know how you'll actually manage to stop all that going forward. But if anyone out there would manage to do it, uh, Elon Musk can. And then obviously, if he finds out that three quarters of the uh, Twitter followers are fake, then suddenly his uh, 44 billion will be down to about 8 billion, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's a take it or leave it deal now, it, guys. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's crazy, actually, because um, he's been known to. Uh... He has been known in the past to use uh, Twitter bots for promoting Tesla. You know, he, he does it. Every, you know, everybody does it. Any Anyone that's smart, the bots are the way uh, that they've, you know, you use Twitter. I mean, it's a, it's a part of Twitter um, just like anywhere else. And it's uh, – <laughs> and there's, there's no way around it because of stuff like GPT-2 uh, and 3 and uh, – Dally 2. If you look at Dally 2, I saw somebody, they made vacation photos of them going out snorkeling. All the photos were completely fake, but they looked very real. They looked incredibly real. Um, and with with the progress with AI, there's no way to avoid bots at this point. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're, you're probably right in that as well. So it's... Uh... Yep. So on that note, unfortunately, people, it's not been a good week for the markets. It's not been a good week. And going forward, it's like everything's going up. You know, your price of your food, everything's gone up 30% essentially in the last year. You know, inflation today in the UK was it's 40-year worst at 9%. So it broke that barrier as well. So, you know, we're okay. We're 825 apparently. <laughs> Yeah, apparently it's it's all a lie. It's, it's, what what it's, did you say it was in the UK? Forty? 
No, no, nine, it was the worst in f- 40 years in the UK. It's oh, 9%. It's like, 9% okay, yeah. in the UK right now. So you're at 9% inflation in the UK, which is like, yeah, it's, it's, it's super high. It's, it's, it's going like to go going higher. It, it is higher than that. It's it's higher than... Uh, well, food and, and beef's yeah. 30%, you know? Yeah. Milk's 30%. You yeah. know, it's just like price of steel, the price of product, the price of everything's going up. If we continue to not uh, produce more oil and gas here as well, and the oil prices stay high, then essentially that's not going to help because everything's under transportation as well. So you've got to understand that. And then it comes back to tariffs as well. You know, it's all right to say we're going to be putting more tariffs on the Chinese companies coming in, but are we putting tariffs on there? Or are we putting tariffs on US companies bringing Chinese product back into the country? And when you put a 25% tariff on something, for people to understand, it's not that the company just passes it on to the consumer. So your price goes up as well, you know? Yep. So putting, putting uh, 25% tariffs on Chinese companies is not always the best product. Sounds good, you know? Trump yeah. loved all saying stuff like that. Biden loves saying that, you know? Biden's out there yeah. saying now is just like, you know, we're going to... I've just got my little figurines here to, to, to emphasize to people here as well. So let's go. So we're there we're going. So, you know, excuse me, Mr. President Z, um, can we drop the, the tariffs? Uh, you can drop the tariffs for the US com- uh, for the Chinese companies, not the US companies. Oh, that sounds a good idea. Yes, that's what we'll do. So like that sort of thought process doesn't actually work. Tariffs are a bad thing, people, unless you've got the manufacturing in your own country. So until we bring manufacturing back here en masse, we spoke about it before, with automation, using artificial intelligence, powered by renewable energy, that's what we should be doing right now. We should be opening all the factories back in Detroit and Michigan and going back into these places. Let's open the factories back. Yeah, you're not going to have 5,000 people. You're going to have 50 people and 5,000 robots. And you know what? We'll stick solar panels on the roof. We'll stick uh, wind turbines there. We'll use nuclear power that's net zero as well. And then we can start to manufacture the product here, be in charge of the supply chain. And then if you want to do tariffs on Chinese product because they create too much CO2 emissions with their product because Garrett's tracking all on the blockchain, that's fine, you know. But if we're just going to put tariffs for a politician's point of view, then you have to pay a 25% tariff on that. And as we always say, it's not China's fault. It's not India's fault. It's just what it is basically a lot of the decisions that Western governments have taken back in the 80s and 90s to move manufacturing abroad. Now we've got supply chain problems. And now they don't want to admit that previous mistakes have done that. And as Garrett spoke about earlier, we've got to bring the manufacturing back into this country. But when we bring the manufacturing back, why not use automation? When we bring the manufacturing back, why not use renewable energy? Why not make these products carbon friendly and net zero? You know, that's the stage. That's how we have to disrupt the world going forward. And if we can produce the products cheaper in America using automation and renewable energy, I guarantee in China, they're going to go, well, we're going to start copying suit and do the same thing too. And then we move out of this thing a lot faster than we think. But if we're just going to keep sending the orders and they're going to keep opening the coal plants to produce the product that we want to order and don't blame them we are placing the orders and we're placing the orders through nike and adidas and these guys you know we've got to start to look at let's stop blaming the oil companies 
you know, blockchain for energy, start reading what these guys are doing. We need this energy source. These guys are trying to help with this transition in energy and they are creating this transition in energy. So that was a bit of a rant at the end about the, the usual stuff anyway, Garrett. So we just want to thank everyone who came on with the comments today, especially to Rebecca Hoffman with Blockchain for Energy. Please check Absolutely. that website out. They are the leaders in the entire industry, people. Go to their website. Also, Glenn Weissman for wanting us to explain a bit more with .NET and what Web 1.0, Web 2.0, 2.3. And then Daniel Addison as well for bringing some more information. And we'll put this all in the show notes on the bottom. So thanks again for your time today then, Garrett. Yep. Thank you, Alistair. Once again. Thanks for everyone out there who's watched. This is Boom It's on the Blockchain. Thanks very much. Have a nice day.